Nice. Nice. I like how when they cut Bad back boys to him at different times, the the cup of whiskey is different levels. Of Welcome back to a special edition of the Lockdown NBA podcast. I'm John Corrales, host of the Lockdown Celtics podcast, joined by Matt Shook of Lockdown Pistons, Matt Peck of Lockdown Bulls for a The Last Dance post-game podcast. Uh, Matt and Matt, how you fellas doing? I feel like I'm getting ganged up a little bit here with the Celtics guy and the Bulls guy <laughs> for right. the, the bad boys portion of the uh, the documentary, but it was it was amazing. I'm a little bit more fired up at 11:40 on a Sunday night than I should be after watching it. It was a lot of fun, great documentary. Obviously, enjoyed this week even more than last week, and looking forward to more. Yeah, I was thinking about you guys uh, in that part of the doc where they were talking about the passing of the torch. And the Pistons walk off in game four and how the Celtics actually kind of did something similar to the Pistons where the Pistons finally got over the Celtics hump. I mean, come on. How great is this? It's like three of the greatest (laughs) Eastern Conference teams in NBA history all being, you know, immortalized in one documentary. That's really about the best of any of those dynasties. So, and Peck, I would, I'll I, I tell feel you, good right now. I'll tell you right now, I would walk off in a second if you ever won something over me. I would just be out the door before I even get a chance to, to say anything. To hey, you. man, I, you know what? I hate Bill Lambeer. I hated <laughs> Rick Mahorn. I, I know he's a Chicago kid, and one yeah. of the reasons that Chicago basketball is as proud as it is, I hate Isaiah Thomas. Sure. Every one of his uh bits in these episodes tonight i was just like bring it bring me all your hate isaiah (laughs) thomas because you can't say anything he is so jealous of the legacy that mj became in 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 his city of chicago i just oh john John was telling me before we recorded that he's a big bill and beer guy though in in south oh totally totally oh yeah i mean just every everybody in boston loves boston native bill Lambeer. you know hometown kid uh, I, I, you know what, though, to be fair, I'm I'm a sore loser. I probably would have done exactly what the Pistons did. <laughs> right. like, I, I, I'm not I'm that bad at handling losing. I, I, I will try to defend. I got my bad boys tank top on here as we record. And of course, I got my little little uh, glass of whiskey in honor of MJ as well right here. <laughs> but uh, I just want to say that. Uh, you know, I, I think uh, I will defend the bad boys on that. I think it's just one of those things that's, like, overblown. I'm not saying it's the right thing to do or they should have done it, but it's like, why are we doing this all these years later, 30 years later, doing this, like, analyzing whether it was the uh, – were they did they not have any class or where's the sportsmanship? It's like all the things in the world that you could go after on certain guys or certain teams or things in sports, and, and this is something that keeps coming up with this team. It's like, oh, who cares? What's the big deal? I think well, it was the, the Jordan, Do- the, the way Jordan it, documentary. Sure, and it's because he right. makes it a big deal. And, and that's right. okay. That's just what fuels M- him. He's MJ's always looking finger, for slights. MJ's fingerprints are all over this doc. So, sure. of course, it's like right out of the gate, it's like Jerry Krause, villain. And like, there, are <laughs> right. lo- there are lots of shades of gray in that, in my opinion, as a Bulls fan. Sure. But, of course, we weren't surprised to get that. And then, of course, the way that the Pistons Bulls rivalry was depicted as well. But, you know, I, I, I think, like, um, it's uh, – it's earning your stripes, you know. It's it's getting over that hump, and the Pistons created such a challenge for for MJ and the Bulls, and they put a big part of these episodes tonight talking about how MJ and his teammates physically prepared themselves. Um, you know, going to the weight room as soon as they lost Game Seven in 1990, they were like, "We're going back to the gym. We're getting stronger. We're getting tougher." So by the time you know Rodman 
pushes Scotty out of bounds in game four, it's like this doesn't phase us anymore. It's such a turning point in this whole thing. The Pistons and and the the comparison to the Pistons getting past the Celtics is an apt one because the that's the hurdle that you have to clear. The Pistons for so long were were even with their tactics, even with whatever the they they couldn't use them to get past the Celtics and then they did and they broke through and they won their titles and then they kind of became what the Celtics were to the Bulls. Like that passing of the torch, I think that linear timeline there is, is an important one. Um, and like you brought up, Apec, that this this spurs on a new kind of era for Jordan getting in the weight room. It kind of spurs something in Scottie Pippen who Jordan says, hey, I, you know, you, if you stand next to him, you know, I'll fight with you as long as you fight. Now, now these guys are starting to get that fight. Um, the Pistons are kind of almost the epicenter of turning Michael into like that next level, getting him to that next level, getting uh, Phil Jackson in there and and convincing Michael to not just be the me guy, to be the 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 team guy. So, uh, Matt Shook, I want to get your kind of feelings on how the Pistons play this role and kind of beating the Bulls to a point where they have to build these calluses to become what Jordan is and and this this great Bulls team. Yeah, and and I I want to add for the record that uh the Pistons beat the Bulls 3 times in a row, 87, 88 and 89. I'm sorry, 88, 89 and 90. I think when the doc they Nobody talked, needed that clarification. They talked about the two. I just thought I mean uh, Jordan executive producer, I get it. His two two guys are executive producers. I get it, but it just kind of acted like they just lost in the two conference finals. Well, they lost the year before in the second right. round as well in 5, but just want to make sure we got the scoreboard right. Just glossed right, there. right over that one. No we problem. don't need to talk about it. But that. Uh, yeah, I mean that's what the Pistons were. I mean, yes, of course we talked uh, about and this is about the Bulls and Jordan, the greatest player of all time, and I'm, I'm never going to argue against that. But it, yeah, the, the Pistons were you know we weren't just this hurdle that the the Bulls wanted to get over. This was the best team in basketball for two years, maybe three years, if they win Game Seven against the Lakers in, in the previous Finals. And and John knows about the the battles with the Celtics. One of those could have gone the other way if Dan Lee and and uh, Vinnie sure. Johnson don't hit heads the year before. If Larry that. didn't steal the ball. Yeah, you know. uh, yeah, of course. Those yeah. factors in, in in Scotty's migraine in Game Seven. I'm sure Bulls fans oh. could argue that that could have obviously gone oh. another way too. So that's what kind of these things kind of come down to <laughs> or, or you know pain. or Hugh Hollins in game five against the Knicks when MJ was playing sure. baseball sure <laughs> sure so I mean that's what that's and it's great but it's like I think and 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 yeah as a Pistons guy I'll take the at the end it's like the the Celtics had a better run before the Pistons the Lakers had a great run all throughout the decade and the Bulls went on to win six the Pistons are the obvious number four team of this group but you know there's nobody that makes an argument below them for number four and it's a nice place to be in this golden age of basketball golden age of the NBA to be right in this conversation it's a good place to be especially given the last decade of Pistons basketball this is the best night of Pistons basketball that they've had in 10 years yeah. watching a documentary from Michael Jordan <laughs> so that tells you about this is that tells you about where we're at but uh, I think there was a lot of people like the younger set mostly here in Detroit and in Michigan were worried of coming into tonight about how they would be portrayed 
trade, but I thought right. it was not only fair, but it was like complimentary towards the Pistons, and and uh, you know yeah. rightfully so. It, it talked about them being not just a bunch of thugs or a bunch of bruisers, which they were to some extent, but, but just a, great a, a very great team, team that, that won titles. Yeah. It wasn't accidents. Chuck Daly being the coach he was, McCloskey, Davidson, I know those guys don't get talked about and shouldn't because it's about the Bulls, but in just talking about these players, I am a little bit disappointed, though, I mean, if to, to pick nits a little bit here, you know, Joe Dumars, like, there's not a lot of Joe Dumars talk, and he was the guy, and nobody ever shuts down Michael Jordan, nobody's going right. to make that argument, but... Of course, beating the Bulls a lot has to do with doing neutralizing Jordan as much as you can. And Dumars didn't get enough credit for that, as opposed to the taking him down when he gets in the paint as a team. They they did like break down the quote unquote Jordan rules in the episode tonight, um, but it was mostly about what you do with him depending on where he is on the court. And they didn't really bring up Dumars specifically to your point. Um, but as you said, this is a Bulls documentary after all. Dumars got plenty of praise in the Bad Boys documentary sure. that came out, oh, I don't know, like not less than 10 years ago. Yeah. So that was your latest bright spot. But I think, and it's, I can't remember who in the doc said it tonight, but there was this uh, passing of the torch, not just with teams, but with players and like, you know, uh, Magic and, uh, and Bird and the rivalry that they had, two great franchises, uh, saved the NBA in the 80s when there were some really dark times, and that MJ was the next bright, charismatic star that was ready to take that torch from those two players specifically, and the Pistons interrupted that with their bad boys, you know, we're Detroit, we're dirty, but we love each other. Anybody else who doesn't love us, you can all go to hell. That was a part of what made that team great, is the way that they embraced that label that they were given. They said, you know, we're just playing tough. We don't think we're playing dirty. We think we're playing tough. But if that's what the league wants to label us as, then fine. And, and you know, and, and Shook, I would love to get your perspective on this too. That in part is what made Dennis Rodman not only a great basketball player, but a but but allowed him to not only thrive, but survive. Like, looking back on Dennis's past, and yes, I did go back and watch the... Rodman documentary for the umpteenth time before tonight because I knew we were going to get a heavy dose of Rodman. Mm -hmm. Such a difficult upbringing, rejection everywhere he went in his in his childhood and adolescent years, and the Pistons were the first place where he felt like he belonged. He was embraced, and he maybe was embraced by a group of outfits that nobody else liked, but that made sense to him. And it's crazy that he had this second life of his career with the Bulls of all places, but there was that transition of Rodman being the villain to Bulls fans and then the most liked guy, like as some have said, like he was as popular, if not more popular, than Michael Jordan in Chicago for three years, which is crazy. Yeah, I, I think the one thing about the Rodman part, and obviously, you know, Pistons, Bulls, and it made sense that that was kind of the transition into the the going back to the the rivalry was when they were talking specifically about Rodman's upbringing, was that I don't know if they quite tied it together correctly in the documentary. I know they talked about how Chuck Daly uh, was kind of a father figure to him in some respects, and that when things started to deteriorate in Rodman's personal life, when he's found, you know, at the palace with uh, the gun and the car uh, and passed out overnight uh, and that that thing happens that this is I don't know if they connected the dots quite that this is at the time that the bad boys are breaking up 
guys are right. leaving. This is daily not, left. This is not teammates a, left. Yeah, it's not a uh, a contending team that's going to win championships. So it's basically like you know Isaiah tears his Achilles and he's out. He's just done after 13 seasons. His career is over pretty early. You know, early 30s compared to guys we see now. And then it's basically Joe. It's Dennis Rodman. They got Ron Rothstein as the coach now after being Daly's assistant. So it, it. I don't know if I, maybe I missed a little something from the doc tonight, but I don't know if they quite connected those dots so well that the the bad boys were Dennis Rodman's family to in right. all respects. So when that nuclear family kind of broke down and Chuck Daly was gone in uh, New Jersey at this point, um, that that was kind of when the trouble started for Dennis. And really getting back to Jordan being in some ways became his father figure again, and Phil obviously to a, an extent too. So it's like it's almost like he. He got back to a family type of atmosphere with people that he respected and people that were had the authority to tell him no and to tell him to do stuff every now and then. The the hiatus that he took, the, <laughs> yeah. the 48 we need, hours. We need more footage of that, right? <laughs> that's, that's what I want to see. The yeah. 48 hours that turned into, what, four days, five days in Vegas. Uh Jordan knocking on the door to drag Dennis Rodman out of a hotel room with mm. like naked Carmen Electra underneath. Right. Like, that, that that's the footage we need. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the footage. And, and we as need. someone as someone who owes a lot of my time from my high school days to Carmen Electra, I will say that uh, she's still looking pretty good. Just just gonna throw that out there. Yeah, sure. She's still you know she's still Carmen Electra for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, but. That highlights, and this is obviously the Phil Jackson, Dennis Rodman duo of episodes. Um, The relationship that they all have, that conversation in Phil's office, where it's Phil, Rodman, and Jordan, and Jordan's like, you know, 48 hours, you know you're not getting it back in 48 hours. Like, right, yeah. It's even, almost like, like MJ knows something about gambling binges in Las Vegas. Right, yeah, right, like, yeah. He, he's, he's... I know from experience, dude, if you <laughs> yeah. know what I mean. Like, <laughs> but that whole thing kind of, like, it, it, it shows everything in a nutshell. It shows what, what Rodman is, it shows what... Uh, what Phil Jackson is a little bit more understanding. Like, you know what? This guy's a free spirit. You're going to, you know, you're going to let this, we got to let this guy kind of be himself. Uh, As a guy that, that has kind of like an adversarial relationship myself with, with the Phil Jackson thing because of the red R back, you know, I guess rivalry, whatever. Uh, It did give me a better appreciation of Phil just kind of understanding the, what Rodman needed and why doing that allowed Rodman to to come back and still give the Bulls what they needed and why Jordan was the right guy to kind of be Rodman's kind of like uh what big brother for lack of a better yeah. term. Yeah, I think I think I think MJ and Phil were both his big brothers and served that role. And maybe you would say Phil more so a father figure than a big brother. But I think as Dennis was testing the boundaries and, you know, shout out to Wesley Snipes, none of this happens without Dennis Rodman seeing demolition man like sure. that. Like he shows up <laughs> as a, a San Antonio Spur factors, yeah. with that bleach bond, Wesley Snipes hairdo. And much like everything else in Dennis's life, he sees what, evokes a reaction from people around him and i think he's his torment and and the crux of who he is as a person has always been about figuring out 
rejection versus figuring out acceptance. And he struggled with that his whole life. But even just seeing reaction from people and if some of it is positive, oh, I'm getting a lot of attention. Oh, I'm, somebody wants to interview me for a cover story for Sports Illustrated because I'm talking openly about like LGBTQ ideas and talking about having openly, you know, uh, you know, gay fantasies and I'll dress in drag and I'll do all this stuff that actually harkens back to his childhood when you know, his sisters would dress him up in drag and all this stuff and he was comfortable with it. Pressing boundaries for the sake of a reaction was so much becoming a larger part of who Dennis was. And it was always like, is it shtick or is it really who this guy is? Is he pretending? Are these various masks? And Phil was smart enough to be like, look, dude, I'm not going to put a leash on you. you. You're like, do what you want to do. Be the person you want to be. You know, be, be as bad as you want to be, to borrow the, the title of Dennis's autobiography. But when I get you inside the borders of this basketball court, I know I'm going to depend on you. And further, and, oh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, Phil felt that way. MJ felt that way so much so that w- the one time where Dennis really screwed up, as we heard in the episode tonight, it was like his apology was like going to MJ and asking if he had an extra stogie. But after that, Dennis fell in line. He knew where the line was without having to be told where the line was. I think that's why it worked. And for the record, you know, Dennis talking to people around the the, Pal- the Pistons organization that were around back in the day, uh, just a beloved guy. I mean, someone who's just not just like tolerated, like maybe he was at times in the second half of his career, but a guy who was loved by people in the Pistons organization, George Blaha, who's salt of the earth. He's the Pistons TV play-by-play guy and has been for 40 years now, uh, an icon in the state of Michigan and really around the NBA. He uh, told me a story on the, on the podcast this year that uh, one of his friends would pick Michael or would pick Dennis Rodman up when they were up playing at the Palace, and they'd go down to downtown in the city of Detroit and just be giving away cash to homeless people. It was just like that was the kind of thing that Rodman would just do, not getting any recognition for it, but just would just, you know, he was became a wealthy guy, especially for his standards, and uh, wanted to share the wealth with some people who were in need. So that's the kind of stories you hear about Dennis Rodman here in Detroit. Well, you know, the, the thing about Dennis Rodman that, that really stands out in hearing all of this is it, it, the only person that he hurt was himself. He never hurt anybody else. And when, when he did... Then he had that apology, quote unquote. Um, when when he did do something that kind of negatively impacted somebody else, he tried to make up for it. Um, any of his behavior that was that people misunderstood, and 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 they, I think nowadays, if you put Rodman in, you know, twenty twenty NBA, it it's a little bit more accepted. He's still eccentric. He's still going to get the headlines, but it's not like uh, the Barbara Walters interview where she's looking at him like this oddity. I think people will just be like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's just Dennis. And Dennis and is Dennis. He, Dennis is Dennis. But like, I, I think that's why it was crazy is because it was when it was like Rodman that's in the mid, even in the mid nineties, like counterculture wasn't a thing yet. And you know, like macho men in professional sports talking about, yeah, I've had gay fantasies or, or dressing in drag, or I'm going to do a book signing and I'm going to show up marrying myself dressed in a woman's (laughs) bridal outfit. Like there was so much of that, that made people uncomfortable at the time. And Dennis was just like, I don't give a bleep. 
I'm going to be who I am. And it was like a, a weird transition of some people embracing that, which made Dennis feel good. And some people saying, who is this freak? I don't want anything to do with him. And now in today's NBA, and like I think the, the next one you could say maybe behind Dennis was like Allen Iverson. But just when you talk about the the tats and and uh, the hairdos and the the sure. the like counterculture part of like hip hop NBA that in some ways did precede Dennis Rodman himself, but he was the first one to just blow the lid off of it. What would in today's NBA, because Rodman is Rodman and he's going to want to be something different. What would, what would that look like in today's NBA? What would his, his counterculture be? What could you do in today's NBA? Would he be like wearing a, a like, not to get political, but would he be like, go all MAGA Donald Trump on us? <laughs> yeah, like, just the whole other way. I feel like just, that's because, I mean, the the NBA leans left. There's no doubt about sure. it. The NBA is a sure. left-leaning, progressive, uh, as an organization, they've, they've, they've stated as much. Um, that would that would kind of have to be, but it would kind of run against what it seems like he would be. I, I kind of I'm, I'm really curious to see what what Rodman would do to kind of act out and test boundaries today. Well, I mean, you said it with the the political part of it. I mean, what's he been in the news for the last couple of years? Is he's been talking to Kim Jong Un, and right, you know, that's true. Yeah. That's true. Rest in peace, Kanye West. Yeah. So, if you haven't, if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend the documentary. You can find it on YouTube. It's called Dennis Rodman's Big Bang in Pyongyang. It is okay. a like A to Z chronology of that entire North Korea, you know, exhibition oh, basketball game episode. I watched it earlier today. It's wild, yeah. man. Like I. I've I've always grappled with that as I've aged. Like I fell in love with Dennis Rodman, the basketball player, when I was a kid, and now as a retired player who's not only battling his demons with alcoholism and and his family life, but the way that he's put himself back in the headlines for this reason, it's like, man, I grapple with my fandom. But I think it's another reminder of de- just like Dennis, as as you said, Shook, like he's a good person at heart. He always means well. He never intends to hurt other people. He just he just cannot understand acceptance and rejection he just and like of course of all people who does he reach out to like a, a known like murderous tyrant mm-hmm. because that known murderous tyrant was nice to dennis rodman mm-hmm. that's mm-hmm. how his brain has always worked yeah but you know but like like john was saying it's it's something to get in the news right it's some way to be relevant to oh, today's yeah. society and you know whether it's uh uh probably the wrong thing to do or whatever it's still just dennis being dennis in terms of way to be culturally relevant even though he hasn't played basketball in obviously many years now the, the my favorite part of the entire dennis rodman thing though and it's it's going to be the absolute least talked about part when he was talking about rebounding mm-hmm. and and mm. uh, and learning like oh okay i'm i can be my best if i'm playing defense and rebounding and getting his guys into the gym you go shoot and i'm going to like he's just conducting experiments like right. lost in all of this conversation that we just had for 20 minutes is the fact that when it comes to rebounding, especially, he's a genius. Like, he's a yeah. genius rebounder, and he did it through the hard work and scientific experimentation. Oh, when you shoot like this, the ball goes there, so I need to be positioned here. The angles, knowing that different right. guys shoot differently, the spin is different. That is genius-level basketball, and I I do think that he might have taken it to – an extreme to the point where like he, he 
probably could have gone up for like putbacks or or whatever, but he chose to just focus on ex- like extreme rebounding numbers. But that's because he was so good at it that he just just wanted to keep doing it. That little sequence where he was just kind of like, and it was the quick cuts. That to me was like my my jaw like was like my jaw dropped because that is just genius level basketball. Yeah, and it's like you mentioned that different guys shoot different ways. Like he mentioned, like you know, uh, a magic shot has this spin on it. Bird shot has this spin on. MJ shot has this spin on it. And when he's doing these crazy hand gestures about the different shots coming off the rim, like I was thinking, like he's he's like the Rain Man of the NBA. But instead of toothpicks on the ground, it's shots off the rim. Like, it's, but but <laughs> as sure. you said, John, it's it's not something wired and weird like Rain Man was born with, but like something that he studied the craft of it. And MJ referring to Dennis as one of the smartest basketball players he's ever played with. Yeah, like that's that's just not lip service because we know that MJ doesn't just give lip service to former teammates because they were former teammates. That is why Dennis is a Hall of Famer. That's why he was a part of teams that won championships five times. That's why he's a two-time defensive player of the year. He put in the work to figure out this is what I can excel at. Because when you go back, they mentioned it briefly in tonight's episodes. They touch on it more in Dennis's doc in the 30 for 30. When he was at uh, Southeast Oklahoma State, he averaged like 27 points a game. The dude could score. He just got to the NBA and was like, oh, I figured out what I can do. On a good team, I could rebound and play defense and that's what he did that one great stat that they had going out of commercial break where it was like Dennis had 20 some games in his career with 20 plus rebounds and zero points <laughs> and like the next the next highest person to record those stat lines was Marcus Camby with two mm-hmm. like it's insane yeah I, I gotta tell you about Pistons fandom of course you had the bad boys winning the championships and then you know making a deep run and getting swept by the Bulls in 91 but after that you had that post Isaiah era the Joe was still there and this is when I remember watching games night in and night out as opposed to being younger to the point where you remember the highlights and stuff but not maybe the day-to-day I remember listening to games on the radio or catching them uh, maybe before I go to bed or something like that or catching games on the weekend on TV and the highlight of the game was in the fourth quarter when when Rodman would pass 20 rebounds and blah would be on the radio going nuts about it and you know that he's describing him tipping the ball all over the place before he finally brings it down. The crowd goes nuts about it. And obviously this is a different time in basketball and rebounds is not what it is back then. But I mean, that was like legitimately thrilling for the Pistons back then in those days. I got a stat right here. Dennis Rodman, 159 20-plus rebound games, most in NBA history by far. Moses Malone, 95, is second. Um, Andre Drummond is actually fourth on this list with 81. And I assure you that we were not going crazy about Andre Drummond's 20-plus rebound games in Detroit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So... uh, Rodman's Rodman's impact here is is clear and yeah, I, I like that we've been talking about Rodman for uh, 20 minutes now uh, on what is mostly being referred to as an MJ documentary yeah, yeah. right right I well, am here I for think it. this is like the non MJ night I would assume I'm, I'm I'm kind of assuming obviously the first one with his more of his upbringing this is probably the one that's like less about him than the rest of the nights will be right. I'm guessing yeah. yeah yeah I mean you you get to see like they they sh- they obviously, it in the middle of it, it, it does focus on Michael Jordan, but the 
the impact of Rodman and Phil Jackson in in the Michael the Michael Jordan story, like that's I, I feel like we're setting up here for the this departure, like that the end of the second episode is Jordan saying, Hey, look, I'm not, I'm not going to play if, if Phil's not the coach, um, this final run, the last dance, there is the, uh, Dennis Rodman element. And, and that's, that's enhanced by Phil Jackson and Phil, that connection. And that brings you to another, like, ballsy moment Doug Collins who Jordan loves gets fired to bring mm-hmm. in Phil Jackson that's another Kraus move like Kraus gets a ton of crap in this mm-hmm. the first episode like everybody's been clowning him even in this episode y- you see him kind of like dancing like a goofball and Scotty telling him to sit down like because because Jordan had that kind of feeling about him and, th- and this dude fired a coach that his star player that Michael Jordan loved to bring in Phil Jackson and and Jordan didn't like the move and ultimately right. he came around to it that is extraordinarily ballsy who does just that just like he just like he also traded MJ's not only favorite teammate but best friend Charles Oakley and MJ hated that move and they got Bill Cartwright in and MJ begrudgingly after the fact admitted like yeah that was a good move like we needed Cartwright we needed his body in the middle there are plenty of instances where Jerry Krause did something great and didn't get the credit for it but he was so concerned about getting credit for it and even the silly stuff like him dancing around and people making fun of him he wanted to be one of the guys so badly. He wanted yes. to get as much credit as the rest of the guys so badly. And then you have from the, the first two episodes, the whole organizations win championships versus players win championships debacle. And it's just like there's so many different gradient ways where fans turned on Jerry because the team turned on Jerry. And it got to that point in this 97-98 season where Jerry Krause came to a scrum of media and said, this will be Phil Jackson's last season. And everybody's hearing MJ say, well, if if I can't play for Phil, I'm not playing. So all of the arrows go immediately on Krause's back when in reality, and I know Bulls fans don't want to hear it and they want to have this revisionist history. But even as young as I I was like 12 years old in, in the last dance season, I remember hearing other things like Phil Jackson saying, hey, man. Uh, you know, Jerry says last year, I'm good with that. Phil Jackson always believed you got seven years max as the head coach of a team before you lose your voice and they tune you out. The last dance was year going on year nine for Phil. So he was getting tired. MJ, I also think, was ready to hang him up if they were able to win this championship. Scotty was pissed off and wanted out regardless. Dennis was getting old and clearly becoming a problem. Ron Harper was aging. Every important piece of that team was breaking down. So there are all these instances of, yeah, Jerry did this or Jerry said that. But as you said, John, Jerry did a lot of things to make this dynasty happen. And people want to point one finger of blame at him for this dynasty breaking up. And I just don't see it that way. Yeah, and I think you know we we know that this documentary doesn't get made unless it's Michael Jordan who's kind of uh, pulling the levers. But it's just interesting how much 
crap that Krause gets throughout this, and uh, that the fact that there's no like family member that can speak up for him or is presented more authoritatively about this whole thing, and even like Jordan, just the the fact that he still has that grudge on Krause, and even in tonight's with Isaiah, like he wouldn't watch the video without giving a little monologue about Isaiah Thomas. It, it just you just kind of see why Jordan is Jordan, right? I mean, the mm-hmm. grudges that he holds, the slights that he still has 30 years after the fact, uh, he's, he's a maniac. I mean, he's a psychopath. And this is like why he is who he is, for better or worse. And uh, it, it's just kind of fascinating to watch like the the mind of this guy that we've all, you know, feel feel like we've known, but then he kind of disappeared the last 20 years. Uh, I know that, the, you know, he's owning the team and everything, but as far as public eye, uh, just it, oh, it's fascinating yeah. that we're we're kind of getting this look at him uh, as like a, and he's kind of he's checking all the boxes of what we kind of all we, we figured he would be and we figured he would say about these things that happened decades ago. Yeah, that's uh, yeah, Jordan. Jordan. I know that when this came out, there was he had this fear like he was going to come off like an asshole. I, I don't think he comes off like an asshole. I, I, I think he comes off like Michael Jordan. And yeah, yeah. right, yeah, <laughs> you know, like, but. This is, and I say this every time, what separates Michael Jordan from other guys that have his athletic ability? Like, there's nothing extraordinary about Michael Jordan athletically. He jumps very high, but other guys can jump that high. He's 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 not... Seven five. He's not like the fastest guy in the league. Fast, but like there are there are athletes that exist that are just as athletic as Michael Jordan that will right. never ever reach that level. What is it that makes him reach that level? It's that thing in his head that causes this. That causes him to look at that video of Isaiah Thomas, which was hilarious, where he says, "There's right. no way you you could you can convince me he wasn't an asshole." Like that <laughs> yeah. that whole thing, that smug look on Jordan's face, that you know that what he's thinking in that moment is why Isaiah Thomas was not on the dream team. That mentality, the the mentality that got him to point to. Three beat writers and say after the Cleveland like game five against the, the the Cavs, we took care of you, we took care of you, and Sam, we're taking care of you tonight. That mentality is what makes Michael Jordan Michael Jordan because he absolutely refuses to be anything but the best, and and that's what right. what brings a lot of this about. And like you started off saying, John, what MJ worrying that, oh, people are going to think I'm an asshole when they see this documentary. And you're like, no, people are going to think you're Michael Jordan. Yeah, we already like, thought that, that Matt. <laughs> we already right. thought like, that. <laughs> I was like, what did you think what? we thought about you? MJ, sorry to spo- spoil it for you, but everybody already thought that. Like, And everybody already respects you. Mm-hmm knowing that you were an asshole and it's it's the same reason why some people loved and some people hated his hall of fame induction speech because a lot of the similar things that we're recounting right now in this documentary it's like here's a laundry list of people that didn't believe in me and that pissed me off (laughs) or a lot of people that rubbed me the wrong way and that pissed me off and it only fueled the fire that i needed like mj said in one of the episodes tonight it was like when i couldn't win 
in it, even if it was a practice. And like we got that great anecdote about one of the practices um, in the early '80s days where you know they switched teams on him, and like he thought Doug oh, Collins was like yes. fixing the score of the practice, and he got so pissed off that he storms out of practice. It didn't matter if it was Game Six of the Finals or a practice against his own teammates. He said, like, losing, it drove me insane. And that is why he's the dude with the titles. It's not the athletic ability. Like, when he was his airness, he didn't win anything. MJ won titles. You think of his airness, you think of the young athletic Jordan. You think of MJ, you think just, like, the dead stare of a murderer, but on a basketball court. Yeah, and I think what's interesting about the first night was he was talking about like the acceptance of his father a little bit there. I thought that was something that I hadn't really, you know, that uh, that he couldn't fix, he couldn't fix the cars, whatever the story was that that his father didn't uh, give him the attention that he was looking for, and of course the the typical little brother stuff. That, uh, that that will fuel certain people, but you know, to take it to that level that he just kept throughout his life, just kept finding that next mountain. Whether it was to the end of this uh, story today, where he wins that first championship, well, then it's you know to to repeat like like the Pistons did, and then to threepeat like the Lakers did, and then to win as much as Bill Russell did, or whatever it is. As the list goes on, to be known as the greatest player of all time, he just finds those slights. And as we talk about that, like at some point, the human capacity you can't just keep doing that every day after every day, which kind of explains the baseball hiatus in a little bit. I know we like to theorize about the gambling debts, and I think they'll they'll touch upon that and, and kind of squash those rumors or urban legends or whatever it is at this point. But I think that kind of explains why he, and of course with the, the personal situation with his father uh, being killed, that it kind of, it kind of puts that in, in clear view where he needed to get away from this toxic idea where he needs to be competing in the best every single day. And then at the end of this last dance, you know the, the fact that it wasn't so clear cut that there would be some path to come back the next year and be competing for a championship, whether that's with the Bulls or some other team or whatever the situation would be, that it makes sense that this was the last year for this iteration and that uh, that competitive fuel that drove him every day. At some point, the tank became empty and there wasn't enough there, and it kind of makes sense when you think back about it. But the the one thing that Jordan even in all of this mentality, the one thing that he has is still an ability to, to, to adapt. So his coach that he loved and Collins is gone, but he adapts. He, he accepts Phil Jackson. Uh, whereas a lot of star players and we've seen them, they want their guy and that's it. And if you don't have their guy, then the entire thing falls apart. Uh, when Phil adopts Tex Winter's triangle offense, which they talk about in this episode, and Tex Winter says, there's no I in team, Michael, and he says, well, there's an I in win, which I think is a great comeback. Um, it, But he understands, even with all of this ego and this drive and this fire and, and this FU attitude that he's got that he carries throughout his entire life, he still understands like, okay, I I have to adapt. I have to sit there. Uh, I have to accept Phil Jackson as my coach, even though Doug Collins was my guy. Doug Collins put the ball in my hand. Phil Jackson and Tex Winter are taking the ball out of my hand. And instead of losing his mind, he accepts it, accepts it and rolls with it. 
and they use this triangle offense and and it becomes part of what makes this team great and Jordan kind of lifts that that uh perception of the guy who can't carry his team to a title and he because of his acceptance of the triangle and Phil becomes that guy and trusts that guy and trusts his guys and and the segment where they realize John Paxson is the guy that's open so pass the ball to Pax and Pax goes off and they win like that that shows like that little bit of a understanding from Jordan that as much as he wants to be the guy that 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 accepting all this other stuff is what really lifts the entire team and him to another level. Right. I, I mean, you say you call it a little bit, a tiny bit of understanding or acceptance. I also might call it the tiniest sliver of humility. Um, and I think it's why, even though he initially clashed, clashed with Phil Jackson, because Phil, as MJ said, in his own words, was wanting to take the ball out of my hands, whereas Doug put the ball in my hands. He understood that at the same time, MJ is hearing all these things from the media, all these things from the national media, all these things from other players around the NBA. You're no magic. You're no bird. You might be a scoring title winner, but you can't actually win NBA titles. You can't make your teammates better. He listened to that, just like he listened to every other negative thing said about him and used it as fire. And so when Phil... This kind of oddball and a new coach who's going to, of course, MJ is going to Im- immediately meet with some kind of resistance is saying to him, everyone around here is talking about how you can only be a great individual and you can't ever actually win a title. I'm going to tell you right now, we're going to try something new and you're not going to win a scoring title necessarily. But if you actually want to gain that respect of your predecessors slash peers in bird and in magic, this is the way we're going to do it. And I think that is why when you fast forward to this last dance season, MJ had become so attached to Phil because he's one of the few people who got MJ to understand something that MJ didn't initially want to hear. Here's my question for both of you guys. Is it humility or is it a weird selfishness because Jordan was told, like, throughout his whole career, his whole motivation was being told you can't do something. And then he says, well, F you, I'm going to do it. He was told you can't carry a team. You can't make your teammates better. So selfishly, he says, oh, I can't. I'll show you. And then he, that is what drives him. So do you understand, like, is it the humility yeah. of like I yeah yeah I'm gonna be humble here, or is it be like well I don't want to do it, but you say I can't, so I'm going to. But but that like that's what he was trying to do. He had to make some adjustment because he couldn't beat the Celtics scoring 63 points in a playoff game. You know he he couldn't beat the Pistons scoring 38 or 40 while he's getting knocked to the ground 40 times a night. There had to be some adjustment of his frame of mind to say okay. We'll try it slightly differently, and I'm not going to try and beat these teams by myself anymore. But but I'm there was. Go ahead. I'm I'm no, I'm no. also interested in the part of him that yes, I agree, and that's the narrative, and it's true. There has to be some sort of sacrifice. But I'm also interested in the part of his brain that still 
believes that it would have worked the other way still. Like if he still believe, like he was obviously upset at first about Phil Jackson instead of Doug Collins. Is there a part of him that says, if you would have kept Doug Collins, I could have eventually gotten over that hump with the Pistons. We still could have won a bunch of titles. Now I know it's a complicated thing. It's not black and white to the point where this is the right way, this is the wrong way. But I wonder if like that stuff just kind of builds up in the back of his mind, and that's part of the the Jerry Krause hate at the end of the year, at the end of the the career. Like you have to push that part. Of your brain onto someone and that's where Jerry Krause like we're, we're like it's it's the stuff that he's doing in the locker room and the the continued picking on and bullying of Jerry Krause mm-hmm. behind the scenes it's uh, you know i mean Jordan's Jordan whatever but there has to be something else going on here and that's got like that, that's a villain that's built up you need someone that day to day you think is the villain that you have to go up against every day but i think this Doug Collins Phil Jackson thing is one of those examples of something that ends up working out just fine for Jordan and in his brain and in most of his heart, he probably believes it was the right thing. But if there's a part of him that's like, I could have still scored 60 and beat the Pistons the next year. And this could have all worked out fine. And the NBA would be bowing down to me, but you know, he knows probably in his head that that there's a hundred, not a hundred percent chance that would have worked. And if that's part of the, the Kraus hate too. Well, well, Shook, you can't forget, it did all work out fine because years down the road, the Bulls brought Doug Collins back as a special advisor yeah. to John Paxson in the front office, and which we all know has gone swimmingly well. Great. Doug Collins, so, uh, who became Pistons coach a few years after this and had a couple yeah. of good seasons as Pistons coach, didn't take him anywhere meaningful, but just interesting that, that Collins ends up in this full circle, too. Uh, they did a thing in the middle of this where they showed a bunch of photos of Michael Jordan, and I had this thought. Jordan took like the coolest basketball pictures. The photos of Jordan in flight were like Mm -hmm. the coolest basketball pictures I've ever seen. And back in the nineties, that posters, people were buying posters. Um, At that point I was like high school and college. So I'm like, I'll go to the mall and I'll flip through those big racks and you see Jordan kind of like with the legs tucked up and the elbow tucked and you're like, man, that is so cool. Um, I think those photos added to his legend. When you see the photos in Sports Illustrated, like people today, kids today, and I'm old enough to say the the phrase kids today, (laughs) kids, you don't understand because you don't have that same impact newspapers were they mattered back then mm-hmm. sports illustrated right. mattered back then the posters mattered back then and jordan's legend grew f- through the imagery and we saw two of the most iconic images in these two episodes the shot over elo and the fist pump mm-hmm. the hugging mm-hmm. and crying of the trophy. uh the trophy Two of the signature images of Jordan's career, but mixed into that were those photos of Jordan in flight. The the images, the imagery of Michael Jordan's career is something that stands out to me as something that enhanced his legend because captured in those little moments, you were left to your imagination and you you kind of had to like mentally absorb it. Nowadays, you see video, you don't even have to process it. You just see it. Oh, that's right. cool. Next. The photos you have to like process like how did he get up there? It really right. it really created a different kind of sensory appreciation of Michael Jordan. And something that we haven't even touched on yet 
but is a huge part of this that the doc hasn't even really touched on yet is global brand. Yeah, it's coming. How you much know it's that coming. is a yeah. big part of MJ because you know, John, you're talking about the the freeze frame moments, and I like I'm just like I mean like my room was plastered with MJ and Bulls <laughs> oh, posters shit. when I was a kid. Like not a, not a centimeter of white paint space on my walls, and it's like. Like kids these days who put on a pair of Jordans don't fully comprehend that the Jumpman logo is a, a, a simplified version of a dunk the dude did in real life. Yeah. Like these freeze frame moments, a multi billion dollar little logo of a man with split legs holding a basketball is something based in crazy ways in reality. And it's like. A, it, it, like it has an impact on global economies and shit. Like oh, it's yeah. crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The global brand that Matt talked about. I mean, that's got to be coming at some point soon. And I think it might even get tied in with the Dream Team, which they teased. They talked about being maybe next week's foundation in some ways. You could tie that into his global brand, but also something that's been conspicuously absent so far is Tony Kukoc. And I got to believe that that's going to be <laughs> part of the next chapter because obviously they play him. In the gold medal game and then uh maybe because like for a guy who's you know one of the top players the fourth best player or whatever on this last dance team to basically be completely shut out of this documentary so far i gotta believe he's going to be a big focus of next week especially given that the dream team it'll be an easy easy tie-in that mj MJ and scotty fought over who got to guard Mm -hmm. him in the olympics Mm -hmm. yeah the the entire another jerry krauss move there you go another jerry krauss move that mj hated Mm -hmm. hated Hated. Yeah. He and Scotty both hated all the attention that Jerry Krause gave to Tony Kukoc. Do the Bulls win that second three-peat without Tony Kukoc? I don't think mm-hmm. so. No, that's no, true. It's true. But I, I guarantee you that the Kukoc uh, part of the documentary is just going to be Jordan and Pippen just destroying him in the Olympics. <laughs> oh, like, yeah. That's that's going to be like 95% of it. Like, oh, he was important, but look at what we did to him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and they're gonna cut to like a slightly thicker graying Tony doing like a you know an interview twenty years later where he's just like yeah yeah they really made me miserable that day. You know what? I saw Kukoc. I went to a, a G League game, the Windy City Bulls playing the Grand Rapids Drive. It was in not to brag, but I was at that game at the the Sears Center there in Chicago or outside of Chicago, and a couple years back. And Tony Kukoc was there, kind of like signing autographs and stuff. He looks great. Guy looks great. So I'll vouch for Tony Kukoc. Oh, he does. I saw him at a Bulls charity event last year and talked his ear off until I'm pretty sure he got sick of me. But he, do- <laughs> dude, he looks, he looks, he could definitely drop fifty on me oh, right now. Sure. I'll tell you that. Uh, let, let's wrap it up with some rapid fire things that, that we noticed uh, b- before we say goodbye. Um, at the beginning of the first episode, it really stood out to me when uh, Rodman was telling the media, "Yeah, I was bored as hell." Uh, can you imagine him saying that in the Twitter world today? Oh my gosh! Like as one of my buddies on my Bulls uh, post game show for NBC pointed out, like for perspective, remember a couple years ago when Eric Bledsoe just tweeted out that he was unhappy, yeah, on like a, a, a team that nobody cared about, mm-hmm. and it's like, dude, you're Eric Bledsoe, who like you, like what what imp- impact you? And Twitter exploded, yeah. like a, a borderline player on a bad team just said like, well, oh, I'm unhappy, and Twitter exploded. Yeah, every moment of this last Bulls season would have broken Twitter. Every oh, day they oh, yeah. would have broken Twitter. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, I would have been couple things yeah, I wanted to touch on before we, we kind of sign off here is I love the cigar story of Rodman coming up to the, the – what a great way to apologize for someone just to go up to their hotel room and ask for a cigar. And I love that both those guys are such maniacs that they they understand what happened there and agree with it and just moved on with mm-hmm. the rest of their lives. I also That's like uh, Chuck Daly telling Brendan Malone, don't put a saddle on a Mustang at practice. Yes. That was oh, yeah. a good one. Rick Mahorn telling Sally, if you're going to hit the them hit them like you mean it uh, i like that as well <laughs> and i also if, if i have to nitpick a little bit here with the bulls um you know horace grant saying uh straight up bitches about the uh, about the pistons after that Mm-mm. didn't didn't mind it but only the only reason that i minded is because it was horace freaking grant you know what Amen. i mean <laughs> like it was like pippin jordan fine whatever even bj who's from michigan that's fine too but like horace grant like what did you know hey, like, come on man i i dude horace is a buddy of mine i worked with it he did pre and post game with us at nbc sports chicago last season i love horace i uh, you know of course i nitpicked him for all kinds of stories from the old days when we worked together last year I will stand for Horace all <laughs> night on this podcast. <laughs> Look, underappreciated and underrated part of that first three, Pete, man. They really hurt without him when he went to Orlando. Mm-hmm. And I, let's not even talk about the 94-95 playoffs yeah, where them. Horace yeah. Grant gets carried off the court in a magic jersey. Mm-hmm. I still like – I burned that out of my memory. But – how dare you? How dare you? Because guess what? I will I will meet you in the alley and Horace is going to be behind me and you go ahead and bring an aging, creaky, arthritic Bill Lambeer behind you and we'll see who wins well, that He happens to be at my apartment right now, so we're ready. We're ready to go. Ooh. All right. <laughs> um, uh, this, this segues nicely into uh, – a story completely made for Twitter, and I need a complete documentary on this in and of itself. Phil Jackson coaching in Puerto Rico where the mayor oh my shot God. a play. The mayor <laughs> yes. came in and shot a guy during a game, and they killed a chicken and poured the blood mm-hmm. on the visiting bench. Hashtag this, le- this-, this league, right? <laughs> I need that story told like, in a 10-part series. If- if if we're still in quarantine a year from now, like ESPN presents a ten part documentary series, the chicken blood, <laughs> like we need that, we totally need that. Yeah, I, absolutely. I, I mean, I used to- when you said rapid fire, I was like, we got to bring up the chicken blood part. Yeah. I like incredible, but it's so fitting when you know about Phil Jackson, the personality. There's like, of course, of course, he went and coached <laughs> in some like neighborhoods fighting each other, Puerto Rican league. Of course, that's where he yeah. got his coaching start because he was probably down in Puerto Rico on an acid trip and somebody was like hey you want to coach some basketball yeah i ended up there for a couple years yeah i I used to live in the virgin islands and i would cover the university team playing in the puerto rican league against all those teams and the virgin islands team it's like will they show up for their games it's like i don't know so that was just kind (laughs) of kind of how things go down there i don't have any good chicken blood or shooting of the coaches or referees stories but yeah it kind of rings true from my experience as well and, and look, man, I, I don't want to come across as a Jerry Krause apologist on this podcast because somebody has to a popular somebody person right to. now. Somebody's got to speak up for him. That's another thing. We mentioned the Cartwright-Oakley trade. We mentioned uh, Tony Kukoc. We mentioned bringing in Phil for Doug Collins. Phil isn't even there to replace Doug Collins unless Jerry Krause 
is the one who brings him mm-hmm. in from his stints mm-hmm. in first the Puerto Rican League and then the CBA. Mm-hmm. Like Jerry Krause is the one who give, gave Phil Jackson his shot in the NBA. Yeah. Nobody else did that. Real, Jerry we'll Krause take, we'll, did that. We'll Real take it sim- a step further. Oh, Sorry, but he's the guy, the first hire that he made was Tex Winter. Tex Winter's the guy that influenced Phil Jackson. Phil Jackson's triangle offense wins championships in Chicago and Los Angeles. So that is ex- that is especially influential. And bringing in a guy like Phil Jackson, who, of course, he was a player and is well-respected, obviously, in the Bulls locker room at this point to some extent, but a first-time head coach in the NBA to take a team over to go over the top. I don't know if you'd see that today. Uh, And and it kind of reminded me of Chuck Daly becoming the coach of the Pistons. I mean, he had coached in Cleveland for like – 20 games, but was a guy who wasn't too far removed from being the Penn head coach and a high school coach before that in Pennsylvania. So, I mean, Jack McCloskey and now Jerry Krause kind of making courageous moves to bring in guys that were off, you know, nobodies in in a, in a, a nationwide sense to take over teams that were championship type of teams. And it worked. So maybe there's a lesson there for GMs of today. Well, I would say that the Toronto Raptors with Nick Nurse will probably feel pretty good about how, how that turned out when you when you when you turn around a team early and you win, granted they had Kawhi, but uh, I think I think that that bodes well for the future of a, a team where your coach kind of gets the most out of you, those guys so early. Uh, so with well, that, we feel great here in Chicago. Jim Boylan has a punch clock in their practice facility, <laughs> so you know, yeah. you know he's getting the most out of his. Guys. He'll be great well, in his next job, that's for sure. <laughs> Which as is, a janitor <laughs> i was i was trying to figure out what non-basketball job to go with i'm glad you sure. chimed in um all right i think we've been going for uh about an hour so we're gonna wrap it up there uh great conversation something new for us here on the network so hope you everybody enjoyed that uh make sure you're following matt shook with lockdown pistons matt peck with lockdown bulls uh i am john corrales of lockdown celtics if you are so inclined follow us all uh make sure you are subscribing and uh sharing these podcasts we're out here providing this content uh even with this hiatus going on guys great conversation this was a lot of fun uh enjoyed it uh, next time, well, I guess I guess maybe we'll just start doing post game, po- post documentary <laughs> podcasts. That's be, that's I'm what we're down, doing. Man. Should be a fun year. Guess what? Yeah. When these Sunday night episodes finish airing, I can't sleep, so <laughs> yeah, I'll be no. here. You're all keyed I'll up. be here. <laughs> it's been a long time since I've been keyed up at almost one in the morning, but here we are. Uh, yeah. Hey, Good you time. just haven't gone out clubbing with Dennis Robin in, in, <laughs> in a right. while. The, the night is young. The night is young. <laughs> Hey, hey, the Vegas mayor wants to reopen, so there's a chance. There's a chance. <laughs> All right, everybody. Really appreciate everybody's uh, listening to the show. Hope you enjoyed it. Again, subscribe, follow on Spotify, and now you can tell your smart device to go play the new episode of Chad Ford's NBA Big Board. <laughs>